Hello and welcome to our devotions on the Gospel of John. Today we want to talk about what is commonly known as Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. In this devotion and reflection, I want us to think of three issues. The first is Jesus' attitude towards unbelievers or people of a different faith. The second is what sustains Jesus' life. What keeps him alive? And the third question, which is probably the most important, it is the reality of the Christian faith and the reality of the Christian experience. So let us turn to John chapter 4, 1 to 42. It's a very long passage, but let's read it together or let me read it and you listen carefully. Let us pray. Father, speak your truths to us. For your word contains so much truth that could change our lives, that could make our lives very different, like springs, like water springing out to eternal life. So God, allow us to think and reflect carefully and let your word sink into our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus answered her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, 
and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labour. Others have laboured and you have entered into their labour. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Saviour of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me then now address the first question. What was Jesus' attitude towards unbelievers? It says here that um, Samaritans do not have anything. For, so Sorry, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's in verse 9. And this is a very historical thing. It started centuries ago during the time of uh, King David's grandson Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a bad king very unlike his grandfather David. And God decided to find a different ruler for his people. And so God raised a man called Jeroboam. And Jeroboam was a godly man who then led a revolt against Rehoboam's people and led people out of the rule of Rehoboam. But then Jeroboam lost faith. He became scared because God had commanded him that even when you take the people out of Judah, you will bring them back to worship in Jerusalem. Now what, Jer- what Jeroboam had done was that there was a schism when nation of Israel was divided into Judah on one side, Judah and Benjamin on one side, and the other tribes, the northern tribes on the other side. But God had insisted to Jeroboam that the northern tribes would continue to worship in Jerusalem. But Jeroboam lost his nerve. And instead then of asking, telling the people, go back to Jerusalem to worship, he told the people he set up his own altars to worship in Bethel. In other words, he set up an alternate place of worship. God was angered by that. But what happened then was that a big schism took place between the southern nation of Israel and the northern nation. The southern nation became, became to be called Judah, and the northern nation became Israel. 
But over time then, because of the alienation from Jerusalem and the faith of the fathers, the faith of the Israelites, the northern nation became cold. And after the Assyrians had conquered Israel, the Israelites then intermarried and married Assyrians. And therefore they became heathen, they became mixed breeds. First they were worshipping on the wrong place, and then they became half-breeds, which was something that compromised the faith of Israel. And so it was no wonder then that the Jews, the ones who continued to live in Judah, continued to worship in Jerusalem, despised and was was contemptuous of the Samaritans. To the Jews, the Samaritans were were half-breeds, they were outcasts, they were the disobedient people, no longer the traditions of the Jews. Hence the great animosity and the contempt that the Jews had for the Samaritans. And so here when Jesus had to cross Samaria, he then stopped and spoke to a woman, a Samaritan woman. And of course the Samaritan woman was very surprised. First she was a woman, but more than that, Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans. But what you notice also is the defensiveness of this woman. You see, it remained in the national consciousness of the Samaritans that they were despised by the Jews and they wanted to find validation for their faith. And hence, the woman said first to Jesus, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. What the woman was saying was, We have legitimacy too. Look, this well is in Samaria. It belongs to us. And guess what? It came from your father and my, our father, Jacob. We have links to the traditions of the fathers as well. We are legitimate people. And further on then, he, she, as she perceived that Jesus was a prophet, in verse 20, he says, she said, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She raised the controversy that had bothered the nation for decades, for centuries. We too are legitimate people. We worship on this mountain in Samaria. You say it's Jerusalem, but we have an equal right to being God's children. Here was a Samaritan who was struggling to find validation, find legitimacy for her faith. And Jesus could have then dismissed her and said, well, you are a Samaritan, you got it all wrong. And you are half-breeds, you are apostates. But instead, Jesus merely said, well, it's true that faith comes from the Jews. Salvation comes from the Jews. But that was all that Jesus said. He did not enter into further debate, nor did he continue to humiliate the Samaritans. Rather, he said, well, you worship on this mountain, we worship on that mountain. One day, there will be no mountain at all. What Jesus was saying then was that there were deficiencies in his religion as well as there were deficiencies in the religion of the Samaritans. You worship here, it's useless. We worship there, it's equally useless. There will come a day when these things become irrelevant. That what we seek for is something greater. Jesus was very loving towards this Samaritan woman and to Samaritans themselves. And he was humble. He acknowledged that his own religion had its deficiencies. 
worshipping on a particular mountain didn't draw them to God. Neither the mountain of the Samaritans nor the mountains of the Jews. Neither of them would draw people to God. One of the things that we Christians have become is that we are become very sectarian. We talk about us being Christians and therefore have monopoly to salvation and all other religions be damned. But when we hold that attitude of pride, we fail to realize that there are so many deficiencies in our religion as well. Take, for example, the Crusades. The Christians massacred thousands upon thousands of Muslims because of racial hatred, because of money, because of corruption. Slavery. Christians were the most cruel in getting slaves. Sure, other religions had their slaves as well. But slavery by Christians was one of the worst. And then there was the pillaging, the, the colonization, where in the name of Christ, in the sign of the cross, Christians invaded poorer countries, ravaged, pillaged all that they had, enslaved the people, raped the women, killed the men and children, the atrocities that exist. And even today, we need to admit that Christians are nowhere near pristine. That we built churches with millions and sometimes billions of dollars while our neighbours are starving and we give nothing to them. We highlight certain laws like abortion laws and like homosexuality laws, which themselves are not bad but completely persecuting almost those who seek abortion and persecuting those who are gay. Because those are not the most important sins. The sins of avarice, the sins of oppression are far worse. And yet we choose certain sins and we hammer those who are guilty of such sins. We need to acknowledge our deficiencies and our sinfulness as well. And to acknowledge that we don't have the right thing. And yet, as Jesus said, salvation belongs to the Jews. So we say that salvation belongs to Christ. Because there is a reality that only Christianity can give. But it's none of these things about, about coming to church, none of these things about uh, sectarianism, that only Christ, in Christ will we be saved. That is half a truth. But the real truth has to be the experience, which comes to the third question. You see, as long as we hold firmly and stubbornly, more like, and proudly to our dogma, we lie to ourselves and we lie to others. You know, one of the things that I noticed about Jesus was his humility in asking for help. He asked the woman, a Samaritan, to serve him water. Now, a person who is high up there, of higher status, who is considered pure, would never ask an impure person, one he considers impure, to serve him, to help him, unless that's a slave. And that's because of our pride. We think that we are superior and therefore we do not need the help of others. And yet one of the most endearing things, one the thing that draws people to us is our willingness to ask and to receive blessings from others, even blessings from those of a different faith. How wonderful it is when someone offers us a blessing, someone whom, who may be of a different faith, and we say, Thank you very much. I really appreciate this. Come and join me. 
That's a gesture of love. That's a gesture of openness. Have you ever had someone um, receive? Have you ever offered someone help and the person received it gratefully? What joy it brings to you and what openness then you have for that person as well. One of the best ways of reaching out is not just helping a person, which is good, but receiving help from a person, being willing to learn from another person. That really opens hearts. And Jesus then opened the heart of this Samaritan woman by asking her, beginning by asking her for drink. Jesus himself had the water that would last forever, but he was humble enough to ask the woman for a cup of water. But more than that, he acknowledged that though the Samaritans were wrong, so were the Jews in many ways, and at the bottom of it, experience of God had nothing to do with the place or the manner of worship, had to do with worshipping in spirit and in truth, which we will talk about in the third, in the last point. The second issue that I want to address is what sustains Jesus. Jesus, when um, his disciples brought food and asked Jesus, have you eaten? Jesus said, well, I have eaten. I, I don't need the food. And they were puzzled. And Jesus then said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. The one thing that sustains Jesus was doing the will of the Father. It wasn't to be done on a certain day at a certain time during office hours. It was a perpetual thing, the one preoccupation that Jesus had. And it's true for us too. We don't serve God on Sundays. We don't serve God after office hours because we, because office hours belongs to our boss, which is true. But service to God and fulfilling the work of God continues from the moment we sleep from the moment we rise to the moment we sleep and even through our sleep to the next day continues 24 hours, 7 days a week, 365 or 6 days a year. What does that mean? It means that in all that we do, we seek to serve our God. When you are, If you are a teacher, for example, when you go to a class, will you not seek out students who need to be ministered to, students who need to be loved, students perhaps who could be chided but in a loving way. If you were a banker, or a doctor, or a lawyer, or a bus driver, it would be the same. Jesus said, look out and see, do you not see that the harvest is ready? Be attentive. Some of you will be called to be harvesters as well, and when you see ripe fruit, you gather it. Others will be sowers where we will plant the seed. It need not always be in words. Very often it is in deeds, it is in love, it is in just praying quietly for a person. While practicing law, I would pray for every client who came to see me and pray that God will preside in the office as I met with each client. And whichever, whatever encounter we have, we turn to God and we say, God, let me serve you. and Let me serve the people who are here with me. But one of the things then that you will learn is that this actually energizes you. I remember a time when I was a Bible college student and Sunday was a very precious time because it was the only day of rest that I had. 
And it used to be that after church, I would go out with my friends and we would watch a movie or go uh, bowling or just chill in someone's house. But one day I was introduced to the prison and I decided to go every week. And I regretted it soon after because it was so exhausting. I felt right after church, I would rush to take a bus and those days there was no MRT and it would take over an hour to get to the prison from my church. And then I would have to wait a long time for permission to go in. And after that, I would conduct the service. And then it would be a one and a half hours bus trip back home. And that was the only free day I had. And remember quite often, I would, after church, I would then pray and say to God, God, I wish today no chapel, but if there is, I have to go. But if prison's shut today, then I don't have to go was so dead tired. And yet I remember that every week as I left the prison, I was so energized. There was life and there was rejoicing. I would walk back from the bus stop with a skip full of joy in my heart because I learned then that serving God, doing the will of our Father was a joyful thing that gave life. You know, I often, as a chaplain in school, when I was in Barker Road, often had this advice for parents and for students. If you want your children to be hardworking, to do well in school, teach them how to serve other children. And I learned that too, because a group of uh, kids wanted to serve uh, in prison, to help uh, prisoners' children, I gave them very strict rules. I said, you cannot miss a single, single week. Whether it's raining, shining, holidays, exam time, you must come. If you don't, then I will not let you do this. And they agreed. And whether they had exa- there were exams or there were tests the next day or whether there was homework, they forced themselves to come every Saturday morning. And we would have thought that with such a distraction, they would all do badly for the exams. On the contrary, they all did extremely well for the exams because as they taught, they learned, they wanted to learn even more. That's something about service to others. We think that service will tire us out, will take away our time, will just nothing, no time. But let me tell you that as we serve, God gives you energy. It is what sustains each of us service to God and service to one another and service to others outside the church. This is what gives life. It's like food for us. So let me go to the third issue. And today's devotion will be rather long, I'm afraid, but it's something that I really want to talk about because the third issue has to do with the reality of the Christian faith. Jesus said that day will the hour will come when people will not worship in this mountain or that mountain, but they will worship the Father. True worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Let's talk first about truth. Truth is not so much the truth of the gospel, but rather the truth in our hearts. See, God is looking for true worshippers, sincere worshippers, Worshippers who are not just doing it out of, um, out of habit or out of compulsion or just going through the emotions. But worship 
meaning in awe, in reverence of God, really worshiping, re- really admiring God, and bowing and submitting to God. And God is looking for such people who are true in their hearts to worship God. But the other element is spirit, and spirit comes from God, the Holy Spirit. You see, our ability to worship ultimately comes from God. It comes from God, and as Jesus puts it, it's like a spring of water welling to eternal life. That's experiential. Each of us can experience. And that distinguishes Christian faith from just morality, a set of codes of ethics. It is not about being good or doing good or even serving or doing charity. At the, at the bottom of it all, Christian life is experiencing God, the joy, the awe of God, the love of God that can be felt, that is tangible within our hearts. And that is placed by God through the Holy Spirit. And as we read the Gospel of John, Jesus repeats this again and again, the refrain, streams of living water, wells of living water springing from us. It's a reality when Jesus talks about water and of bread that never you no longer hunger and water that you no longer thirst. It is the experience of the presence of God, the awe of God, that has to come to us. And so I urge all of you to keep seeking it. I know that many of us have experienced it. And I've experienced it many times, but yet I admit that it is sporadic. It lasts a few days, sometimes it lasts a few hours, sometimes it lasts a few weeks. The longest I had was it lasted three months, but a lot of times then, it is a period then of no longer really worshipping God. One of the things then that I want us to think about, to pray actually, is for the Spirit to pour Himself into us. That these springs, wells of these springs of living water will keep welling up from within us perpetually, that we will not thirst anymore. You know, I've seen it in the prisoners in death row that I've ministered to. One of them, the closest to me, Dom, at the end of his life, he said, The one year that was in prison was the most happy year of my entire life. Can you imagine that? Locked up in a tiny cell, isolated from everyone except his wife, um, no friends, nowhere to go, nothing to do. And he said that one year was the best year of my life. Because he experienced the presence of God every moment, every moment it was God ministering to him, ministering through him. And he was in awe of God as he left the earth, this world, to go back to God. And I've seen it in other prisoners too, a joy that wells up, not sporadically, but continually every day, receiving new blessings and new joy from God. What I learned is, how much do you want that? How much do you desire that reality from God? Because in this Gospel of John and in other parts of the Bible, it talks about the same thing, It's no longer about trying to be a good Christian, not to be a respectable Christian just worshipping in church. It is a real experience of God that changes our lives. 
I want us to think about that and then to start praying and saying to God, God, let this be for me as well. Not a fleeting moment, not just an hour or two when I'm worshipping in church. But let this reality be within me always that I may hunger and thirst no more because streams, springs of living water is welling up within me. Let's pray about this. Let us now pray. Father, you teach us how much you love your people. Even the people who have got it wrong completely and you love them and you want to reach out to them and humbly Lord you came to seek their help even as you came to offer your life for us and for them we pray Lord that you give us the same loving gentle humble attitude towards those who hold a different faith that we may acknowledge our deficiencies even as we look at theirs But most of all then, that even as we look at the deficiencies of all our forms of worship, we may come to this longing that you fill us, that we be overflowing with your love and your joy and your fullness. Like streams of living water flowing out through us, like springs of living water welling within us. That Lord, we may together seek that truth more and more within ourselves your spirit working in us and through us father show us to the truth of doing your will that service to you and service to one another never tires us but it's what sustains us the reality of life father then we may find it our preoccupation in all that we do to serve you to serve our fellow brothers and sisters and to serve those outside of our circle. Come Lord and speak to us as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for sticking with me and have a blessed week. God bless you and goodbye.